Welcome to the 2SER Book Club, where every week we open up a new book and help you discover something to read, no matter what your taste. Here's Andrew and Julia. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Julia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. I, um, I've got something special for you today. Something else special, geez. Yeah, special yeah. Words. Well, I mean, I'm going to talk about books, but well, anyway, let me... So, I've been rereading, um, I've been rereading Harry Potter over the course <gasps> of yes. the year. Yeah. Um, and I've been having like this is an immense time doing it. Um, it's been in between all the books that I read for final draft. And it's just a nice way to kind of reset myself, maybe fall asleep at the end of the night. Um, it's fun. The writing's fun and it's pacey. And with the benefit of hindsight, I can see how layered the narrative has always been. Like things that you miss on the first reading that reveal themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, although I do have to deplore some of the attitudes and behaviours that I, I don't seem to have picked up the first time. I'm not just talking Slytherin either. Um, <laughs> like Ron and Harry just actively and horridly slut-shaming Ginny. Oh. What was up with that? That was really bad. Um but that aside, we're not talking about the sexual... PC. Oh, okay. Next time you host, we'll do the sexual politics of Harry Potter. But today, rereading it, it got me thinking um, back to when the books were being released, uh, which was not that long ago. Like So, like 12 years ago next week, uh, the final of the series, Deathly Hallows, came out. So, that's not that long ago. Um and back then, you know, as fans prepped for their overnight stays outside bookstores, did you ever camp out outside a bookstore? For I it? didn't. I lined up, though. Mm. Did you camp out? I didn't camp out, no. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, as they camped out before release days, you had the serious readers and other adult-shaped people questioning the impact that these books were having on literature and young reading minds. You remember, that was a bit of a debate. Sure. Um, so, yeah, young adult fiction, though, it was, um, it was having a moment in the sun. And the non-young adults, old adults? <laughs> Elderly adults. old Adults. <laughs> um, they were unironically querying whether this youth phenomenon might just finish the job that every other youth phenomenon since the children's crusade in the 13th century had failed at and finish polite society altogether. You know, youth phenomenons are always going to bring down society, apparently. Mm. Um, but, you know, young adult fiction has remained consistently high-selling and has so far failed to undo said fabric of polite society. <laughs> um, do you read much YA, Julia? Or do you, like, avoid it? Or? I don't avoid it. I, I, I don't, yeah. I choose other uh, books to read, I guess. So, no, no. When you're in a bookstore, though, is it, like, do you, do you give it as much of a glance as other shelves? I don't. No? Should I be? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, YA, what is YA? <laughs> Where did YA come from? Where did it come from? So well, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked. So while there there have been books about teenaged characters for longer than the category has existed, um, as well as books that were marketed to younger readers, um, it was in the 1960s that the term young adult fiction was coined by the Young Adult Library Services Association over in America. So the YALSA, YALSA. I don't think the YALSA. <clears throat> They're a division of the American Librarians Association that started up in 1957. Um, and it seems that for them, the challenge that they, they really had to address was the reading levels and the reading habits of this social demographic that had emerged out of the Second World War, like teenagers. Mm. They were, you know, there were always the teenage years, but this was more a social demographic that was starting to have influence in the ways that demographics have influence. Sure. And I can easily imagine in a world that has like changed utterly as they have grown up alongside it, 
pre-war literature might not hold interest or reflect the world of these like newly emerging young adults. So put it in perspective, you know, by 1960, if you were born in the middle of the war, you're in your late teens, the world to you probably looks a lot different to the world of your parents and the world of your grandparents, more so than just the regular changes. Mm. Um, and we're pretty familiar with the counterculture movements that emerged through the 60s, you know, the radical ways that music, cinema and art were being reshaped. And so literature too responded by shaping this category and then filling it with books that reflected the realities, at least in America, of these teenagers. Mm. This early YA was characterized by the realism of the books that reflected the growing power and perils of being a young adult. So if you search for the history of YA, you're going to pretty quickly find S.E. Hinton's The Outsiders. Have you read The, read the Outsiders? I haven't. <clears throat> I think it was a text on like curriculums for a little while there until someone realized that, you know, maybe we should read Australian books. Mm. But it's, it's held up as this quintessential example of early YA. So it was written in the 60s and the book explores the lives of this group of young men. They're like a, they're like a gang and they're pitted against another gang um, who, who feel like they don't fit in. And it's easy to see how that sort of narrative would capture the minds of a generation who kind of felt outside the consumer culture of their parents, you know, quarter acre block settling down in the suburbs type of deal. Sure, sure. Um, so... That was then, that was like the golden age of YA. Mm. Where to for YA now? And since before the millennium, so 1997 for the first uh, Harry Potter book, it's been dominated by that supernatural fantasy and dystopian elements, the likes of Harry Potter, Twilight, Hunger Games. They are just the, they're the graton. They're the, they're the <laughs> top ones everybody knows. But there are yep. huge, huge swathes of these series. Um and perhaps this fantastical style reflects the existential crisis of growing up in the 21st century. Um, last week, I brought in Mark Smith's Winter Trilogy, and that clearly reflected social issues. And I can imagine that many who fall into the YA demographic, they're probably feeling a bit adrift if they're looking to politicians or even the media for clarity around issues of the oh, yeah. environment. Um, mm. Cli-fi is actually, it's one element of YA that is really showing its social relevance. Mm. The gritty realism is still there, um, just as are just about any genres and tropes that you fancy. YA is also a fantastic blender of styles and tropes to define unique ways of expressing and depicting the world. And it's here that we see one of the tensions of a category like YA. Is it a gimmick or just like a marketing ploy designed to lasso in you know, like, come come here, teenagers, open not only your wallets, but also your parents' wallets and spend all the money. It consistently sells. It's it's always, I think, outstripping the overall growth in sales. Oh, wow. Um, and if it is, if it is just a gimmick, well, then so too is literary fiction, um, which is the standard that is so often lauded and featured on things like awards lists. Because mm. literary fiction, it, I mean, all it is, it's, it's a category that just has the fortune of having its demographic of choice being a dominant culture boffins with both the cash and influence to pretend that what they like is the only serious thing out there. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and don't get it's me wrong. It's too real, Andrew. <laughs> um, all of those literary fiction... Holding up a mirror. <laughs> all of those literary fiction boffins angrily tweeting. It's uh, at, at Final Draft 2S, yeah. Um, mm. do, do literary boffins tweet? I can't imagine. 
Um, I, me though, I, people need a diversity of stories and they need those stories to, re- to reflect a diversity of lives in a way that engages and fascinates. In its history, the category of YA was designed to engage with younger readers who may not have been represented in the books that were out there. And it seems to me that in that sense, it's more than doing its job. Mm, for sure. Engaging the readers and, as you say, that time, that kind of tumultuous teenage time mm. where you're looking even just for escapism. Um, I'm sure a fantasy novel can can serve that role um, yeah. pretty well. Yeah, and it's it's been a bit of a natural evolution. You know, if you look mm. at the sort of the, the birth of modern schooling and then broad literacy throughout uh, the, the 19th century and then into the early 20th century, the emergence of the teenager as a, as a social demographic with purchasing power and social influence was a progression of that. And now we have... Um, this section where it's it's we've not just got YA, we've got tweens, we've got mm. children being taken seriously, but also taken advantage of. As soon as you become a demographic, it's like, well, how do we le- how do we leverage and all of those other horrid terms that mean basically how can we take advantage of you? Having a literature means that there is agency for these people in ways for them to see their lives reflected, which gives them a way to at least fight back a little bit. Yeah, channel that into activism, especially, mm. you know, cli-fi and, and yeah. you know, that's great. Yeah. I, I, um, I've I always been weird about YA because I feel like it's limiting as a category, but I love that these books are out there. Mm. And I just, when I asked you the question about the, the bookshelves, I, I like to have a bit of a browse because I'd hate to think I'm missing out on something just because someone thinks I'm too old to read it. Mm, good point. Good yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just getting that perspective from someone else is important on any any age group. Shouldn't be, you know, less than. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. And, and I mean, had it been published um, a little bit later, Catcher in the Rye probably would have been marketed as. I mean, that's a that's a bad example. <laughs> what a what a white middle class book. But Catcher in the Rye is an example of a book that has always been heralded as a classic and, mm. and literary, mm. but it's about a, a, a teenage boy. And it would be YA now and probably have less readers initially for that. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, there's this kind of pretentiousness that comes with... Mm. I mean, I recognise it. With Catcher anyway. in the Rye. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Um, but anyway, Andrew, thank you very much. Thank you for today. the three weeks we've we've had together, Julia. I mean, yeah, it's been it'll be great to have Tess back, but I'm looking forward to when you next come in. I'll share some more books with you. You've been listening to the 2SER Book Club. We record on Gadigal Land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Tess Connery and Andrew Popel. And a big shout out to Michaela Savage for graphic design and artwork. If you're enjoying the book club, why not subscribe and get new episodes delivered straight to your phone every week? If you want more books, you can tune into Final Draft or subscribe to Final Draft Great Conversations Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. To keep up with everything happening at the station and discover more stories, ideas, and music, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at 2SER.